The Lord be with you. Uh, Amanda had no idea how perfect that was going to be. So put a bookmark right where we just left off, and I'm going to return to the bookmark, okay? So hold that place in your mind. Get ready for the bookmark a little bit later, okay? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This last week, uh, one of our kids, uh, at the very beginning of the week, one of our kids was exposed to COVID, uh, which is becoming just commonplace, right? This is just like the new normal. Uh, We just get exposed to COVID all the time, right? And so uh, the exposure uh, wasn't super direct, uh, but we were still kind of trying to figure out, like, what are we supposed to do, right? Like, should we send our other kid to school? Should we go to work? No one showed symptoms. None of us have shown symptoms, right? None of us have shown that we would have COVID. We wouldn't be here otherwise. But, right, so we're kind of, like, trying to figure all of this stuff out. It's really complicated. This is, like, a daily occurrence now, it feels like, right? Uh, Is anybody else tired of that, by the way? Yeah, amen. Can I get an amen? Amen, right? Amen. Uh, Please, Lord Jesus, come. Uh, So, uh, Susan, our administrator, sent us a video this week uh, to just kind of lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, This is kind of a a parody video that talks about uh, how to discern CDC guidelines, right? And so it says, okay, so you should quarantine for 10 days, but don't actually quarantine for 10 days. You should quarantine for five days. But if you have symptoms, you should absolutely not go out and don't go to work, but you should go to work in case they actually need you. But if you have symptoms, you should absolutely take a test, but don't take a, a test because there are some. But if you, there aren't any actually. And if uh, you want to uh, not have symptoms, don't take a test, but you should also take a test before returning to work. We hope that's all clear. <laughs> right? Like this... This is insane. It's, it is humorous because it's too true. It feels way too real that we're trying to figure all this stuff out. We're, what on earth are we supposed to do? And see, the thing about it is the CDC is doing the best that they can, right? Data is changing all the time. There are things that are changing all the time. We've never experienced COVID-19 before these last two years. And so all they are doing is trying to interpret for us the best that they can. But this is all just data points, Right? And so each one of us, we all make kind of different decisions the best way that we know how. We're all doing the best that we can, right? None of us is malicious with intent. All of us want to care for each other. All of us want to protect each other. And it's just these different value systems, these different ways in which we're understanding the data that impacts what we do, right? Because what we know affects what we do, right? What we know, the data, the things that we can understand, what we know affects what we do. This idea of what we know affecting what we do is essential. It is central to the theology of the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul, he was someone in the New Testament. For those of you who don't know, the New Testament is about the second uh, uh, third. The first two thirds are the Old Testament. Second third is the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote these letters to all of these churches he was establishing. The New Testament is about Jesus and then this emergence of the, the early church, right? And so Paul has written all of these letters. And so for the Apostle Paul, a central idea for him is that right thinking leads to right living. If we can have our mindset in the right space, if we have the the knowing in ourselves, not just these data points, but how we interpret those data points, what we think, how we know our mindset, that will impact how we live. Our knowing leads to our doing. And this is going to be kind of the central uh, part of what we talk about this morning as we continue the book of Philippians. Now, uh, we talked about this a couple different times, so I'm going to see if we can remember. Does anybody remember kind of the main theme of the book of Philippians we've been talking about? Un- unity. 
There we go. We got it. Took a couple weeks, but here we are. Unity is kind of the central theme from the book of Philippians, right? Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Unity. All about unity and humility is kind of a part of that. Last week, Pastor Britta kind of shifted us into this uh, other part where Paul's letter is shifting a little bit, talking about belonging, that we belong to Christ, that Paul said, right, she had the seven things that Paul says, I think I have seven fingers up there, the seven things that Paul said, he said, all this is garbage, it's just a dung heap, none of that matters, we belong to Christ from the very beginning, and instead, what should happen is when we know that we belong to Christ, it should affect what we do. It's not the other way around. We don't try to achieve becoming like uh, so that Christ will love us more, but rather because Christ loves us, because we belong to Christ, it affects what we do. And so this is what Paul continues in uh, Philippians chapter 3 this morning. And so we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. This idea of right living, or right knowing, leading to right living. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 15. It's right near the end of my Bible, but I have small pages. So, you know, it's right around there. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now there is a lot packed in there, right? And I say that all the time because there's a lot packed in the scripture. And one of the reasons we preach sermons is because we actually kind of believe what Paul believed, that when we know rightly or when we know things, it impacts how we live. And so we spend time on Sunday mornings preaching these sermons, not just to kind of have an intellectual exercise, but because we think that as we know better, we do better, right? As we think differently, it helps affect how we live. Right knowing, right thinking leads to right living. And so in this passage in particular, there's a couple, actually quite a few things kind of tucked underneath the surface that if you were to read originally, you might kind of miss because we sometimes miss with our English translations things that are going on. So the New Testament, as we talked about before, is written uh, in a language called Greek. And uh, those of us who are in uh, seminary, we have to go through a a Greek study for two years. It's crazy. Actually, yeah, two years. It's nuts. Uh, But you learn a whole bunch of this stuff. And I started to discover why I think the New Testament is written in Greek, because there's so much packed in to each word that our our English translation doesn't fully capture. And so we're going to kind of dig under the surface a little bit to get at this kind of right thinking, to understand what we know to help inform our thinking, which will then hopefully inform how we live. And so the first thing we're going to look at is right there at the beginning in verse 15. Paul says, all of us then who are mature. Now the word that's there, mature, is actually this word in the Greek called teleos. Now what's so interesting about this word teleos is it has all kinds of meanings. You're going to see that in just a second. There's actually three different ways it's translated in our passage. Uh, And so this word teleos has this idea about coming to the end of something. It's like you've gotten to the totality or completion. Perfection is another kind of idea that goes along with this idea of teleos. 
And so what Paul does is he's pretty brilliant. He starts by looking to the end. He says, if you want to be mature, if you want to reach the end, if you want to find perfection, if you want to come to completion, right? This word teleos, to come to maturity, is what Paul is talking about there. And what's interesting is right after that, it says, all of you who then who are mature, who want to come to this kind of end, should take a view of such things. What he actually says there is you should think this way, right? We've heard Paul say this over and over and over again. Kind of listen for that reason as we're talking this morning. When does Paul say think, right? This idea of thinking, right thinking leads to right living, right thinking. So Paul actually says, if you want to have this end in mind, think this way. This is the end that you should have in mind. This should be your perspective, what you think about these kinds of things. And then Paul sets up, like, this is so brilliant. He's just a master communicator. Because he sets up kind of a, a juxtaposition of the, the opposites of what they should do. So if you want to have this kind of end in mind, the, the real end, the kind of end that actually does reach perfection, this is what I want you to do. And he ties those things together by setting up this kind of opposition between himself and what he calls these enemies of the cross. And so if you look back in verse 12, so in Philippians 3, verse 12, Paul says, uh, he's talking about this belonging again, right? That it's, he can't achieve perfection, but he's struggling towards it. He hasn't achieved that, but he's struggling towards it. So he said, not that I have already obtained all this, that I've achieved perfection, or have already arrived at my goal. Do you know what that word, arrived at my goal, is? Telios, the same word. So Paul is saying, the end that you have in mind I haven't reached that. I haven't reached perfection. I'm struggling in this journey with you. So model your life like me, someone who doesn't think that they can get to the end, but they know that they have to struggle to keep moving towards that end. Do you, do you kind of see what Paul's doing there? He's setting up, model your life like me, who is seeking my end because I know that I can't reach it here. I have to have Jesus. I know that I belong to Jesus, and that's going to affect what I do, not the other way around. So then Paul sets that up in contrast because he's talking about these enemies of the cross and he says in verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Can you guess what the word destiny is? Telios, the same word. It's, he's so brilliant, Paul, because he's setting up, if you want to have this kind of end in mind, if this is the kind of way that you are to live, this is what you should think about these things. Model yourself after someone like me. I haven't achieved perfection, but I'm on the journey with you. But don't think like these people because they have their end. Their destiny is destruction. Their end is now, and we're looking to an end in the future. Brilliant. He's brilliant in tying all of these things together. And he goes on to talk about this idea that if on some point you think differently, right, this idea of thinking, that too God will make clear to you. So he's setting up from the very beginning. Have this end in mind. This, if you're to be mature, if you want to find the right end, follow my kind of end that hasn't reached the end, not the kind of end that leads to destruction. Now, when Paul is setting up these two uh, differences, he says, model your life like me, don't live like them. Now, again, our English translation misses something because both are saying, model your life like me and don't live like them has this connotation of walking. So Paul says, not even just model your life like me, he says, walk the way I do. Walk this way. This is then how I want you to model your life, to walk like me. Don't walk like these people who have this kind of goofy walk, right? Don't walk like that. Walk 
like I walk. This is the kind of way I want you to live your life. I, I told you before Paul is brilliant, and I really think he is, because here's what's so interesting. The city of Philippi is a small town. It's not super big, but it's a, on a main highway, and it connects the ocean to another major city. And so people would be walking through the city all the time. And so for the people of Philippi, actually for everybody in the Bible, they didn't have cars or segways or hoverboards, right? They were walking everywhere. So walking was a really common thing that they all knew. But especially in the town of Philippi, he's drawing this extra special attention to this idea that as you have seen these enemies of the cross walking through, don't walk the way that they walk. Because most likely what was happening is these enemies of the cross that Paul is talking about are these itinerant Christian preachers who more than likely follow the kind of way that Paul followed as a Pharisee. They believed that you could achieve perfection in the physical world. They thought this is exactly how this is supposed to happen. And so he says, don't walk the way that they walk. Walk instead the way I walk. See, they're just passing through your town. I've walked with you and I've stayed with you. I have been present with you. And then we have stayed in communication and relationship with one another. We have journeyed and walked together. This is what right living looks like. We walk together, not just passing through and saying, oh, you should, you should absolutely do it this way, but instead being in intimacy of relationship, walking and journeying with each other. Now, uh, our denomination in its earliest form uh, was called Mission Friends, why our uh, series is called Mission Friends. And there were two essential questions that the earliest people in our denomination asked. Does anybody know what those are, by the way? Where is it written, right? Where is it written is the very first one. Because for the covenant people, they, they felt it's really important for us to hold the centrality of the word of God. That We want to be people of the word who long to see God revealed in scripture. We believe this is an important thing. But equally as important, and the second question that they would ask is, how goes your walk with Jesus? And these two things are essential for each other. Because if we're just over here asking, where is it written? It's just an intellectual exercise. All we're doing is pouring in more head knowledge, and then we just feel like we're super smart, but we're just passing through. And instead, we have to have the second important balanced question, how goes your walk with Jesus? Because what we know affects what we do. There's a, a relationship between these two things that's essential because otherwise we're just filling our heads and we're getting haughty. And that's what Paul says. He says, don't be haughty like this. Don't walk through the town like that. Walk like I do with you, journeying with you, putting my arm over your shoulder. There's movement and there's, there's momentum to this kind of living. Isn't that beautiful? This image that our faith isn't just this stagnant thing where we know stuff, but that we're actually, when we know stuff, it affects how we live. It affects how we walk together. This is what Paul is talking about. Have this kind of mindset. Do you want to reach the end? What kind of end are you going towards? In a lot of ways, that's what Paul's asking, right? Where are you headed? What end do you have in mind? Have this kind of end in mind. Have this kind of attitude. Have this kind of mindset. And if your mindset's wrong, just trust that God is going to show you that too, right? This is what I want you to do. I want you to walk the way I walk in relationship with you, not just passing through all hoity-toity. And so what are these uh, enemies of the cross? What exactly is it that they believe? 
More than likely, as I said before, Paul was a Pharisee. Well, this is not more than likely. Paul absolutely was a Pharisee. We know that as much. And Pastor Britt, again, talked about last week, he had these seven things, right? All of these things are ways in which I can show that I'm like the best of the best. I've achieved everything I could achieve. And Paul says, don't buy that lie. Don't think that just because you've done everything right, that somehow you are better than everybody else around you. What Paul is really saying is these enemies of the the cross, the people who are walking through, were likely Christians who had a really strong tie to the law from Judaism. And they actually believed that you could achieve perfection this side of heaven. They thought if I just worked hard enough, if I just did the right thing, if I just kept the law perfectly, and in fact, if I added all these other laws around the essential law, then I would certainly be perfect and I could achieve perfection here and now. They would find their end in this world. And Paul says, don't do that. That's not what I'm asking you to do. See, he says in verse 19, their destiny is their destruction, their stomach, their God is in their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Their mindset is that I can actually achieve things in this world that make me perfect. Their mind was set on earthly things. Not that the earthly things are bad, but that's all they focused on. And then there's this kind of weird phrase in there, their God is in their stomach. Uh, As I talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, I have a a word in Greek that's my favorite Greek word that talks about stomach, uh, and that's the word splagizomai. Oh, man. So good, right? Splagizomai. It just feels good coming out like blah. Uh, It feels like a gut, right? And so splagizomai is this idea that the very core, the very center of yourself is what spurs you on in right living, right? So he says, have these affections of Christ in the deepest parts of your gut, but don't stop there. Let the affections in your gut move you forward and compel you into right living. That's that kind of idea of splagizomai. But what Paul says here is these people who are walking this way, their God is in their stomach. And what happens if my end is right here? This is all I can see. All of you don't exist. It's all about me. Everything that I can achieve, the things that I'm feeling that are showing that I'm just such a great person, the achievements that I have. And so I'm walking around like this, looking at my belly, and I, you don't look like, don't do that. You look so foolish. Don't walk around looking at your belly like this. Stop doing that. Right, Paul says, quit navel-gazing and look to the stars. Right knowing leads to right doing. Don't think that you can achieve this here and now on this side of heaven, but rather look to the heavens knowing that that's where your hope comes from. Quit looking just at your gut and instead look to the heavens. Paul says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, there's an equal and perhaps just as dangerous idea that we on this side, kind of 2,000-ish years after the writing of this letter, uh, we have a lot of things and a lot of baggage that affect our knowing about heaven, right? So uh, I want you, uh, online, if you're online, I have my phone here so I can hopefully read your, um, your comments. Uh, but I pose this question, and if you write in the comments, those of you in the room, just kind of call these things out. What are some images that you associate with heaven? So kind of popular images, right? Like if you were to see this, like, so just kind of some images, some words that you associate with heaven. Just call them out. Write them in the comments. I'll try to call them out. 
Light, yes, excellent. Singing, that's a really good one, Joanne. I'm gonna put a, I'm gonna put a pin in that one, but that's absolutely so good. Okay, anything else about heaven? Angels, peace, uh, presence of God. Okay, you guys are really good theologically. Pearly gates, thank you. I was kind of looking for some of the kind of like other not so theologically rich things. You all are really smart. So uh, other things about heaven, things we often see on TV shows or popular images of heaven. Golden streets, right? Clouds, that's a really good one. Uh, gates, yes. Clouds. So we often, these kind of popular images of heaven, right, are these very ethereal things. Right? We think about like pearly gates and everything's glowing and it's all like just... Right? It's just this kind of like singing. There's this echo of all these things. But it's all also very intangible. Right? Golden streets and pearly gates certainly kind of allude a little bit to that. But that has more to kind of do almost with feeling like you're excluded from that kind of shiny, floaty place. Right? And a lot of times, at least, um, harps. Ooh, that's a good one. St. Peter. Man, you guys are full of these great things. Clouds and angels. Uh, harps. That's so good. Harps. What a great one. Okay, so there's, there's already tipping a little bit into the reality that Paul faced. And that is that heaven isn't just some spiritual place out in the sky. Right? Heaven involves a significant part of the physical world as well. And Paul would hold that tension. That was what he believed in his normal living. And a lot of times, unfortunately, I think what has happened in the church is we've talked about our soul ascending into heaven when we die. Right? That we are somehow disembodied from our experience here on earth. And our soul just floats up into the clouds where everything's pretty and there's singing and there's harps and there's pearly gates and golden streets, right? Everything is perfect, which certainly there's a reason why that happens, right? Because heaven is the full presence of God, being known fully in the presence of God. But about a, a century after Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, there was a group of people who uh, were known as the uh, Gnostics. Uh, and they, they created this thing called Gnosticism, which ironically is the Greek word for to know. But for them, it wasn't just about intellectual knowledge. It was that God revealed to this certain kind of group of elect people that the physical world didn't matter at all. Physical, not important. And so they believed that the whole physical world, whatever you did in the physical world, didn't matter an ounce. And all that mattered is that your soul was going to ascend into heaven. And you were going to be floating in this kind of ethereal, light, floaty space. And so this is the danger we have when we hear Paul say our citizenship is in heaven, is that we go from navel-gazing to craning our necks to stargazing, and then none of this matters, right? If the spiritual is the only thing that matters, then anything we do in the physical world doesn't matter. Our relationships, the way we care for creation, the way that we engage in the world, none of that matters because all we have to do is look to the spiritual. And so that's the temptation we have when we read this idea that Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. And what's interesting is our English translation misses one tiny little word. And that is Paul says your citizenship exists in heaven. Real subtle. But to say that our citizenship exists in heaven still means we certainly hold the hope of harps and angels and singing and all that that will entail. But if our citizenship exists in heaven, it doesn't mean that we are already in heaven. And so what happens here matters. The physical is just as important as the spiritual. In fact, they come together in some beautiful and mysterious way that Paul will talk about in just a minute. Right? And so if we are only focused on looking up at the stars, that the spiritual is all that matters, we're trying to escape. Right? None of this matters. We just have to escape and get out of here. 
And on the flip side, if we're down here looking like this, walking around looking at our bellies, we think that we can achieve everything. And so if I just work harder and I do the right thing and if I just have the right stuff, it's all going to work out for me. And so somewhere between escaping and achieving is knowing Christ. Right? Between trying to escape from this world and everything is, doesn't matter because we're just going to go to heaven anyways. And that everything is possible to achieve in this world is the reality of knowing Christ. is having your mind set on Christ. And this is what Paul is calling them to. Don't have the kind of end in mind that ends at your belly. But also, don't just look so up at the stars that you forget everything else about this world that doesn't matter. Right in between. Have the mindset of Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the form of a human and being found in human likeness, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That at the name of Jesus, and that God exalted his name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the mindset that Paul calls the church in Philippi to. And he says, if you know this, if you think this way, it's going to totally change how you do everything else. If your mind is set on Christ who was humiliated to the point of death and the most humiliating death he could have on a cross for your sake, then you yourself will lay down your life for your community. Living in the tension between stargazing and navel-gazing, looking up at the resurrected Christ, knowing that all of you are still a part of that journey. And this is the kind of mindset Paul calls the church in Philippi to have. Do you remember that bookmark? From the beginning, from the kids' message? Take the bookmark back out. Here we are in verse 21. Paul then says, Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, calling back to what we just talked about in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the Christ hymn. Jesus, God's, or Paul says that God gives Jesus power for everything. Right, Everything is under his control. Whoa! Because he emptied himself who by that power enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Here is that tension that Paul is talking about. We hold the hope of heaven, our citizenship that exists in heaven. But our citizenship that exists in heaven is also a whole lot about the redeeming of all of creation. There's this tension that exists. And so have this end in mind, Paul says. The last kind of little bit underneath the surface that you don't maybe get originally if you read this is when Paul says uh, he will transform our lowly bodies, the word that's used for transform is this word that sounds a whole lot like metamorphosis. But it's actually even like deeper than metamorphosis. Because metamorphosis would say just our physical self transforms, but this word actually gets it like the fullness of who we are is transformed. And then when it says that you will be like Jesus, it says that you will actually be conformed to the glorious body of Christ. See, there's this hope we hold that Jesus actually did come back to life physically. And so there's this strange mystery that we hold out as the end of what our mind is set on, is that somehow our humiliated body will be metamorphosized, it will be transformed to be then conformed to the body of Christ. Here's the bookmark. 
Uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, my mom sent us a butterfly kit. <laughs> uh, has anybody ever seen a butterfly kit before? Yeah, okay. If you want to have a great conversation, ask Pastor Britta after the service her thoughts on butterfly kits. Uh, because it's just a really fun conversation. So here's the thing. They send you these butterfly kits, for those of you who haven't seen these, in these little jars, right? And there's these tiny little caterpillars. They're crawling all around, and they have all the food that they need. And they come, and somehow they time this all right. It's brilliant. That after about four or five days, they get humongous. Like, they get super, super big, right? And so then they crawl along the side of the thing, and they hang themselves upside down, and they form these cocoons. It's, like, really cool to help your kids understand, like, how metamorphosis works, right? Going from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And so then these, uh, these cocoons are dangling on the top of this jar lid. So then what you have to do is you take the jar lid off, and you don't want the cocoons to fall because then they don't work. And you set them inside this other net, and then you wait a few weeks. I think with these particular butterfly kits, it was like three or four weeks. It wasn't two weeks. It wasn't two years either because that's crazy. Uh, but so you wait a few weeks, and then these butterflies emerge. Now, there's a couple things about this process I was not prepared for, and Pastor Britta was certainly not prepared for. So, uh, did you know that as these, uh, does anybody know what happens to a caterpillar inside a cocoon? It liquefies, it melts. They become like butterfly goo. So, like the full thing of the caterpillar, like completely breaks down. And when it does it, it like shakes, like the cocoons start to shake, right? Which is kind of this interesting picture of like what we eagerly await Jesus, this kind of cocooning, but it's a little too gross. But so they, you like, they completely become butterfly goo. And then on the other side, then like after these few weeks of then reforming as this butterfly goo, they come out of the cocoon and you just think, oh, it's going to be wonderful and glorious. There's goo everywhere, right? Like all along the bottom of this net, they flap their wings and goo gets on your walls. Like it's super gross, right? Like, it, like you think, oh, this is going to be this amazing thing. We're going to bring our kids out and release the butterflies. And it's like, oh my gosh, what's happening? There's this goo everywhere. I did not know it was going to be this messy. This is disgusting, right? It's, it was it shocked me to see this thing. But here's the deal. Metamorphosis requires breakdown. It means that the essence of who we are still exists, but everything is broken down. And the process is super messy. To be conformed into Christ is painful. To allow our lowly, humiliated bodies to go through a transformation process that allows us to be conformed to the body of Christ is not a wonderful rainbows and butterflies kind of thing that we think about. It's the rainbow and real butterflies who get goo everywhere. Right? This process isn't easy. This process requires sacrifice and breaking down and shifting the way we think. Because when we get and encounter something new in our thinking, it can change the way we act. We don't stay caterpillars. We allow ourselves to be broken down inside a cocoon and maybe even shake up a little bit. To eagerly await because sometimes the eager awaiting isn't just because we're excited but because it's painful. Because we need Christ. We belong to Christ. And so that's why I think Paul talked about belonging to Christ last week before he talks about going through a metamorphosis process where everything will be broken down. Because it can be painful to be conformed to the life of Christ. What we know, these ideas aren't just intellectual exercises. 
they actually affect how we go through a transformation process so that our mindset with each other would be like that of Christ who emptied himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, laying our life down for each other. This is the call, the end, the teleos that Paul sets before the church in Philippi. And so as we close, I want to ask you these two questions. The first question is, how do you know Jesus? How do you know Jesus? Not just intellectually, not just data points, but in your splagizomai, in your gut, the affections of Christ that spur you on towards action. How do you know Christ? And then, how does that knowing affect how you live? How do you know Jesus, and then how does that affect how you live? How do you sit with that tension of going through sometimes a very painful breaking down process that feels like sometimes all you are is a pile of goo? But trusting that Jesus is on the other side, inviting you not to be escaping or achieving, but knowing Christ. So as we close, I just invite you to, as Pastor Britta so beautifully led earlier, to close your eyes and to open your hands. To open yourself up to what Jesus might want to speak to you this morning. To have your mind set on Christ. Not to achieve, not to escape, but to know. to ask Jesus these questions, how do I know you, Jesus, in my gut? And then how is that going to affect how I live? Jesus, we know we don't get this perfectly. We know we need to go through a process that is sometimes painful and hard. A process that sits between the spiritual and the physical. A process that doesn't escape, though sometimes escape and having a breath is important. That doesn't focus only on achieving, though seeking to work out our faith with you is important. Between those two things, how do we know you? How do we have our mind set on you? And how then will you call us to go differently? To do differently, to have our thinking shift us into a different way of living. Come, Lord Jesus.